Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined by Greg Potter, who is a PhD and sleep researcher from the UK. Thanks for being on the show. Pleasure. Nice to be here, Bill. Yeah, I'm really glad to be having this chat. It's been a long time coming because I think that sleep is a huge component of bodybuilding. And it's something that often gets kind of swept under the rug where people talk about, you know, diet, nutrition, and then supplementation. But honestly, recovery is so much more important than supplements. And it's a really big part of the equation that people really should be spending some time thinking about, especially since you spend so much of your time asleep. So today's going to be a really value-packed episode for everyone in the audience. We're going to be talking about some tips on improving your sleep, how much to get, um, and and how to troubleshoot some issues people might be having. So yeah, I think starting off, I think the the base question would be how much sleep should physique athletes be aiming to get and how will they know when they're getting enough? It's a very good question. And the stock answer would be that adults between 18 and 64 years old should get seven to nine hours per night. Mm -hmm. Those are standard recommendations. However, it's important to recognize that A, there's variation between people and how much sleep they need. There are truly genetically short sleepers, although the shortest sleepers identified so far still need just under six hours per night. And they are still negatively affected by getting less sleep than that. And there are, of course, genetically long sleepers too, who will need more than nine hours per night. Then there's variation within an individual, depending on things such as the season. Mm. There've been some interesting experiments of people mm. who go camping, showing that their biological nighttime, which you can assess by measuring the concentration of melatonin in somebody's blood, mm. will track the photo period such that during the long nights of winter somebody will synthesize melatonin for substantially longer than during the shorter nights of summer mm. and in lockstep with that sleep duration changes so when they go camping during the winter they sleep much longer than when they go camping during the summer mm. and obviously nowadays because we live in built environments and we have electric lighting and so on, that seasonal variation is probably substantially smaller than it once was. But you might well find that you do need more sleep during the winter. And then there are different stresses that we will go through that might influence our sleep duration on a shorter term basis. So if, for instance, you have an infection, and Bill, I know that you currently have COVID-19, <laughs> although fortunately <laughs> it's asymptomatic, you might find that you need a bit more sleep while you're fighting an infection. If you expose somebody to a relatively low dose of a virus, then they'll tend to sleep slightly longer. Interestingly, if you expose them to quite a high viral load, then often their sleep fragments. So the response isn't linear. Mm. But the other factor that's particularly relevant to people listening of course, is training. And if you take somebody who's completely sedentary and you put them through a structured resistance training program, it's very clear that they will tend to sleep better, provided that the training timing 
isn't inappropriate. So provided that you're not finishing your strength training half an hour before your planned bedtime. Typically what you find is that people who go through smart training will fall asleep slightly faster, sleep slightly longer, have higher sleep efficiency, meaning that the proportion of time that they're in bed asleep is higher than it was prior to training. So they wake less frequently during the night and for shorter periods. And then subjectively, they'll also feel like they sleep better too. So that suggests that exercise will tend to slightly prolong sleep. With that said, and perhaps particularly relevant to many people tuning into this, what you also find is that during overreaching and overtraining, sleep sometimes goes out the window. So people might find that their sleep duration drops off and that their sleep becomes less efficient, more fragmented. Mm. And some people suggest using sleep disruption as a biomarker of overreaching or overtraining. There are probably some things that you can do to help counter that. So with all of that said, my guess is that on average, people doing resistance training need slightly more sleep than more sedentary adults. And it's also important to recognize that many people don't get enough sleep nowadays, and they therefore have a residue of insufficient sleep that will influence how much sleep they need in the coming days if they want to get back to their best. If, for example, somebody has only been spending six hours in bed per night and they actually need to spend eight hours in bed per night and they've therefore been getting an hour and a half less sleep than they would do in an ideal situation, then that chronic sleep restriction will lead them to get more sleep once you give them more time in bed. Mm -hmm. And based on recent research by Charles Eisler and some other people, typically takes something like a week for sleep to stabilize once somebody's been allowed to catch up on sleep that they've lost. Mm. So let's say that you have that history of not getting enough sleep. If you then extend your time in bed to say 10 hours per night for a period of a week or so, you'll probably find that your sleep will stabilize at a consistent amount that's appropriate for you. And I recognize that for a lot of people, that type of sleep extension isn't possible in the context of modern life, but it often is when people have a holiday. So if you can remove some of the barriers to you not getting enough sleep or not sleeping well during your next vacation, then you might realize how much sleep you actually need and some of the benefits that you'll likely experience from that improved sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great points. Actually, that brings up kind of a tangent question where, you know, the idea of sleep banking or, yeah, like if you are chronically short on sleep during the week and then you sleep in on the weekend, how much does that actually make up in terms of, say, if you're a physique athlete, like if how much of uh, the disruption would it help? The short answer is that we don't know. <laughs> and unsurprisingly, there haven't really been any good studies on physique athletes. The only studies that I'm aware of are a case study and a case series 
of people either preparing for natural bodybuilding shows or recovering from having done shows. And based on the numbers of people involved and the nature of those experiments, it's hard to make any guesses mm -hmm. as to how physique training affects sleep and, and how <clears throat> preparing for a show or recovering from a slight show will affect sleep as well. Now, with that said, the studies of sleep extension that have been done on athletes specifically mm -hmm. have focused on a range of different types of athletes, mm -hmm. including triathletes, basketball players, tennis players, and some others. And if you look at all of the different sleep health interventions that have been used with different types of athletes, it seems that sleep extension has the strongest positive effects. So sleep extension of anywhere from about one week to 10 weeks. And typically these studies will have people prolong their time in bed to nine to 10 hours per night. The result of those interventions has been things such as improved sprint times in multi-directional sprints in basketball players, mm. improved accuracy in three point and field goal percentages in basketball players, improved reaction times, improved kick stroke efficiency in swimmers, faster time trial performance in cycling, improved tennis serving accuracy. So based on this research, it seems that sleep extension can enhance lots of different aspects of performance. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that the same would hold for physique athletes. The most relevant study to physique athletes isn't a sleep extension one. Instead, it was a sleep hygiene intervention mm. done by Pal Yabek. And it was published a couple of years ago. And what they found was that taking young men who are going through strength training for 10 weeks and giving them some education about how to sleep better mm -hmm. and then comparing those people to people who did the same strength training intervention but without any sleep education, they found that the people who focused on improving their sleep lost fat mass, whereas the other group actually gained a small amount of fat mass, although it wasn't statistically significant. And numerically, the sleep enhancement intervention also gained more fat-free mass, although the difference between groups wasn't significant. And importantly, the intervention probably wasn't that effective at improving their sleep. So based on that, there is some evidence that enhancing sleep and people doing resistance training will improve their responses to the training. And my guess is that if you take somebody who's regularly not getting enough sleep and you extend their sleep while they're doing strength training, they're going to get substantially better results than what they found in that particular study. Mm -hmm. But obviously, we all need to work on different things to maximize the quality of our sleep and its restorative benefits. And that's one reason that it's often hard to give generic guidelines. And what you really need to do is identify what your specific hindrances to better sleep are, and then introduce interventions that are going to move the dial in the right direction 
and be sustainable and hopefully have some positive knock-on effects onto some other related behaviors too. Yeah, no, those are great points. And yeah, I, I get that we have limited research at this point and, but if it helps other athletes, it probably is a good, you know, really good sign and bodybuilders are athletes in the end and whatever helps our training performance is really going to be beneficial for us from a physique standpoint. And there's something I emphasize a lot that training performance is really, really key. And probably the best indicator we have of how well we're doing from a hypertrophy standpoint from the sort of week to week basis. And yeah, I, I really like the idea of the sleep extension because it's something actionable right? It's, it's something where, yeah, like if you, even if you haven't been able to sleep very much, and there's something that I run into with, you know, in medicine, and it's probably one of the only things I actually kind of am not happy about in my profession is, you know, our, our lack of sleep, but um, the, the, the ability to at least do what you can to make it up when you have the chance, like if you do have a vacation or on the weekends, you will be doing yourself a good one. So the next topic I wanted to bring up was circadian rhythms. And I was hoping you could chat a little bit about it, how it affects sleep and whether different times on the clock are going to be more restorative for athletes. Absolutely. I'll begin by describing what circadian rhythms are. And it probably makes sense to start with the word circadian. Circadian means roughly 24 hours. And our bodies have different processes that recur on a roughly 24 hour basis. The most obvious of these, of course, is the sleep wake cycle, mm. but there are these circadian rhythms and all sorts of different processes. So for instance, your core body temperature will fluctuate substantially over the course of the 24 hour day such that for most people it's lowest in the late sleep period and it's highest in the biological afternoon. And I mention this just because what you tend to find is that strength and power performance quite closely tracks core body temperature, mm. such that most people are stronger and more powerful around their peak core body temperature. And core body temperature will also affect other aspects of physical performance. So for example, fine motor skills tend to be a bit better in the morning when core body temperature isn't that high. Gross motor skills are probably typically better right around lunchtime. Hmm. And obviously the first of those is most relevant to people listening to this. And to give you an idea of the magnitude of those changes, if you compare strength performance at the time of the lowest core body temperature to the time of the highest core body temperature, the difference is probably in the region of three to 10%. So it can be quite substantial. And there's a little mm. bit of evidence, particularly by some researchers in Europe showing that if you can align strength training times with peak core body temperature, then you might get slightly better adaptations to the training than if people train at less optimal times. So with that said, Returning to circadian rhythms, the reason that we have these rhythms, of course, is that we evolved in the presence of predictable changes in the environment. The most obvious of these is the light-dark cycle. And so it would have been advantageous to be able to anticipate and adapt to these cycles, optimizing our biology and behavior 
according to what's going on in the world around us. And for that reason, we need to do what we can to align our rhythms each day with the world around us, because what you find is that way to go and live in so-called temporal isolation, which means that you have no idea what time of day it is. There aren't any change in the light dark cycle. There aren't any change in temperature. There aren't any change in food availability. And what you'd find is that your circadian rhythms aren't precisely 24 hours and they therefore need to be reset each day. And the most important time cues or zeitgebers in this resetting or entrainment process are the light dark cycle. Mm -hmm. And then when and what you eat probably have some small effects on rhythms in certain tissues. Your physical activity might also have some small effects too. And so based on what I just said, of course, it's important to spend lots of time outdoors during the day in daylight and then to keep your nights dark. And it's also important to align when you eat with that cycle too, such that you consume most of your food intake around the middle of mm. the light period. Obviously, there are exceptions to this, the most notable being shift workers and Bill, I know that as a, as a medic, you're probably all too familiar with some of the negative effects of what happens when you then mess up your body's clock. Right, now, you yeah. also asked about sleep and the, the different stages of sleep that we go through. And what I mentioned here is that sleep is in large part determined by two different processes. And one of these processes is a circadian one. Mm -hmm. And the circadian one is regulated by your body's so-called clocks, which produce these circadian rhythms. And this circadian process influences your drive to be awake, such that when you wake each morning, the drive to be awake is relatively low. Over the course of the waking day, the drive to be awake largely rises, although interestingly, there's a temporary dip in that drive around lunchtime, which mm. explains the so-called post-lunch slump. And then around the time that you go to bed, there should be a strong drop in this circadian wakefulness drive. The other process is a sleep process, sleep homeostasis. And this is intuitive in general, the longer that you've been awake, the greater the hunger there is to sleep. Mm. And if you overlay those two processes, then of course, what you find is that during the day, as wakefulness goes on, you've got more and more pressure to sleep, but you also have an increasingly strong drive to be awake. And so overall, your sleepiness doesn't change that much. But then around the time that you go to bed, you now have lots of pressure to sleep. But that drop in the wakefulness drive no longer opposes that sleep pressure. And the result, hopefully, is that you fall asleep and stay asleep too. Now, with respect to the sleep period itself, 
that is influenced by those two processes. And as a result, you go through cycles of sleep during the sleep period and the nature of those cycles changes a bit over the course of the sleep period. We go through these sleep cycles roughly every 90 minutes or so. So most people will have four or five of them each night. Mm. And because there's so much of that sleep pressure at the start of the night, the early sleep period, so shortly after you fall asleep, tends to be very rich in non-rapid eye movement sleep, NREM sleep, and in particular deep sleep. And then as the sleep period progresses, so as we get later into the sleep period, so we're now talking about that time shortly before you wake up in the morning, there's much less of that pressure to sleep because sleep itself will pay off that sleep pressure. And at that stage of the night, sleep is much richer in rapid eye movement sleep, which is the stage of sleep in which you have your most vivid and bizarre dreams. So the relevance of that is that those different sleep stages are important, different processes. Mm. In general, there are a few different processes that seem to be most affected by specific sleep stages. So when you first fall asleep, mm-hmm. you enter NREM stage one, which is like a bridge to sleep. You then go into stage two sleep, which is the stage of sleep in which you spend the largest proportion of the night. And this stage of sleep is particularly important to certain types of memory formation, to freeing up space in the brain to learn new things as well. And then following that stage, you typically enter stage three sleep or slow wave sleep or deep sleep. And this stage of sleep is very important to lots of housekeeping functions. So it's during slow wave sleep that Mm. your body synthesizes much of its growth hormone. And this stage is therefore likely important to the remodeling of connective tissues. And obviously the relevance of that to training is that growth hormone is probably important to things such as the health of your joints, your tendons, your ligaments, and so on. But slow wave sleep also has roles in memory formation, both in the brain and in the immune system. So you can actually somewhat predict people's antibody responses to vaccination based on the amount of slow wave sleep they get around Mm. the time of the vaccination. And slow wave sleep is also very important to things such as brain health. So your brain itself has its own immune system. And during slow wave sleep, a lot of the, the space between cells in the brain opens up, which allows cerebrospinal fluid to wash debris that's accumulated with prior wakefulness out of those spaces. It's a bit like taking the trash out. And then you would typically go from slow wave sleep into a lighter stage of sleep and then into rapid eye movement sleep. And rapid eye movement sleep is sometimes named paradoxical sleep because while parts of the brain are actually more metabolically active than they are during the daytime, as much as 30%. Most of your muscles, so pretty much all of your muscles, apart from ones that are involved in respiration, your heart beating, 
and your eyes and some inner ear muscles are temporarily paralyzed, which presumably is so that you don't act out your dreams. Hmm. And rapid eye movement sleep is critical to your ability to regulate your emotions. <clears throat> it's important to certain types of memory. So whereas deep sleep seems to be key to memorizing one right answer, rapid eye movement sleep seems to be very important to, to getting the gist of things. The way that I normally describe it is that rapid eye movement sleep will be helpful before a multiple choice questionnaire test. Mm. Because if you can get a sense of what's going on, then you might be able to guess the right answer, even <laughs> if you don't know what it is for certain. And then rapid eye movement sleep also seems to be very important to creativity. There's an interesting model of REM sleep known as next up, which is network exploration to understand possibilities that's put forward by Robert Stickgold and Antonio Zadvera recently. And their suggestion is that it's during rapid eye movement sleep that your brain looks for weak associations between things that it knows about the world as a way to anticipate what is likely to happen in the future and as a way to help you make better sense of the world. So <clears throat> with all of that said, the relevance of this to, to bodybuilding, of course, is that because those different stages are important to different processes, you want to get enough of each of them. Mm. However, there are, of course, many situations in which you won't have as much sleep as you would need. And Bill, I know that before we spoke today, you mentioned touching on whether it would be preferable to restrict your sleep to the early part of the sleep period. So let's say your sleep is between midnight and 8 a.m. for ease. Would it be better to get a block of sleep between midnight and 4 a.m. or between 4 a.m. and 8 a.m.? Yeah. And it's a really interesting question. And the short answer is that we don't really know, mm. but there are a few different things that are probably worth touching on. So first, if you had that block of sleep in the first half of the night, then you'd have more slow wave sleep or deep sleep. And interestingly, it seems that when people are deprived of sleep, this stage of sleep is preferentially held on to. It's also the case that all animals have NREM sleep, but not all animals have REM sleep, hmm. which suggests, and I, I use that word suggests carefully, <laughs> NREM sleep might have evolved first and might be particularly important, but there are also data showing that it's rapid eye movement sleep loss specifically that associates with increased risk of all-cause mortality and some other issues too. So I don't want to do away with the importance of REM sleep. And then the corollary of that, of course, is that if you only had that block of sleep in the second half of the night, then you'd probably have slightly more rapid eye movement sleep than in the other situation. Which of those would be better for training performance? I, I don't know. And there aren't any relevant studies that have looked at that specifically. Mm. And <clears throat> what you'll find is that in, in both instances, the insufficient sleep will lead to more efficient sleep than somebody would otherwise have, which 
is itself a good thing. And one thing that's worth mentioning is that your body won't respond the same way to both of them based on what I just said, but also there are some instances in which people will administer sleep restriction to treat certain sleep problems, which sounds quite counterintuitive, but if you look at insomnia, mm -hmm. then sleep restriction therapy or bedtime restriction therapy is possibly the most potent intervention used to help people who have insomnia. Mm -hmm. And what it basically entails, of course, is matching time in bed to how much sleep somebody actually gets. So let's say that somebody has insomnia is spending 10 hours in bed, but they're only asleep for five hours. If that's the case, then the sleep is 50% efficient and that's well below what you would like your sleep to be. And during bedtime restriction therapy, you typically take the amount of sleep that somebody's actually getting and then maybe add half an hour or so to it. So you might give this person five and a half hours in bed. And during the first few nights, they'd be really sleepy and probably quite grouchy, but very quickly the quality of their sleep would improve. Mm -hmm. And once their sleep efficiency is above a certain threshold, you'd give them slightly more time in bed, typically in increments of 15 minutes or so maintain that for a week if their sleep efficiency stays high add another 15 minutes and so on and when you're implementing sleep restriction it's typically by delaying bedtime so if you are in bed between 10 p.m and 8 a.m that was your 10 hour sleep window before the restriction mm -hmm. and you you then implemented this bedtime restriction therapy you typically maintain the same wake time in the morning but delay your bedtime mm -hmm. and based on that and the proven effects of that type of restriction if i had to pick one or the other for myself i'd probably rather have that block of sleep in the second half of the sleep period that was a very, very long-winded answer. So I apologize for, for being so verbose, but I don't know if there's anything you want to pick up in there, Bill. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It's, it's always fascinating when, you know, you have questions and then we don't really have the answer to it. And uh, yeah, like, who knows, right? We'll, we'll have to find, wait and find out. The circadian rhythm is, is something to consider. And it's, um, it's just something I like, wanted to pitch out there for people that uh, you want to be kind of thinking about uh, what the actual daylight hours are and trying to time your schedule to synergize with that. And yeah, the points about insomnia are great. I think I like totally agree. And, you know, with, uh, first of all, if anyone's having really bad sleep problems and the things that you hear in this podcast aren't helping, go see your doctor because there are some causes that, uh, that could be medically related that they might want to ask about. But uh, assuming we, you don't have any of those, yeah, like sleep restriction and having people keep their wake time consistent is the other really big thing. I mean, first of all, you got to get up to go to work. So that's not going to change. But, you know, like if you keep your wake up time the same, you are and, and just stay awake longer. Eventually, eventually you're going to be tired in the morning. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll just pick up on a couple of things in there, Bill. Mm. So one of them is, is just to clarify the first port of call in treating insomnia is typically what's known as cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which basically addresses maladaptive sleep related thoughts and behaviors. And 
there are different components of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So one is addressing somebody's sleep hygiene, one is addressing their thoughts, and then you might also implement bedtime restriction therapy. And it's typically done in a certain sequence such that you'll begin with some sleep hygiene interventions. And then once you have an idea of how much sleep somebody is regularly getting and a bit more information about their regular sleep habits, you might then implement sleep restriction therapy, typically around week week three or so. So just wanted to clarify that. And then the other thing is, I realized that I just went off on a tirade about the circadian system and how it influences things like training performance and the different stages of sleep that you go through. But I also want to make sure that people have some, some practical information about how to maximize the function of their circadian system. And so if we put shift work to the side for a second, just because that's really an entirely separate conversation that would require a whole podcast episode, I think, then I think there are, there are certain rules of thumb that are helpful for people. One of them, of course, is to spend enough time outdoors in daylight each day. To be honest, to anchor the time of your body's clock to the world around you, you can probably get away with as little as about 15 minutes. That will be enough to entrain you each day to the 24-hour day. However, more light than that is certainly preferable. And one of the reasons is that light not only affects your circadian rhythms, it also affects things such as your mood, your immune function, your cardiometabolic health, and some other things too. Mm. And so I think aiming to spend at least an hour outdoors each day in daylight is doable for most people and is likely to give them the lion's share of the benefits they'll get from spending enough time outdoors in daylight. And when you're exposed to daylight matters too, such that if you expose somebody to lots of high intensity light that's rich in short wavelength light, and this is the type of light you'll get outdoors when the sun's up, between about two hours before the person would habitually wake up in the morning, two hours after they'd habitually wake up, you'll tend to accelerate their body's clock. So you'll tend to shift their circadian system a bit earlier. And that can be very helpful if you're a night owl and you're prone to going to bed very late, but you have to wake up to an alarm each day and you therefore restrict your sleep period and regularly don't get enough sleep. So getting outdoors into daylight within two hours of waking up is definitely ideal in that particular instance. And then at the other end of the day, minimizing your exposure to that type of light in the two hours before you go to bed is also going to help in that process of anchoring your rhythms early in the day. If, however, you were an early bird to the point where you feel that it interferes with your social life because so many social occasions take place in the evening, then you wanna do the opposite. And you'd actually want to reduce your exposure to light in the couple of hours after you wake in the morning. And you might instead want to expose yourself to lots of that type of light that I just mentioned between about four hours before you plan to go to bed and about two hours before you plan to go to bed. You don't want loads of that type of light immediately before bed Mm -hmm. because it will wake you up and you'll find it harder to fall asleep. So there's a sweet spot. 
training time also matters. Mm. I mentioned that exercise has some small independent effects on the circadian system. And for night owls, just doing some exercise tends to make them earlier, even if it's relatively late in the day. Whereas for early birds, if they train relatively late in the day, it'll tend to shift them a bit later. And then nutrition, of course, matters too. And whereas patterns of light exposure and exercise can influence the timing of the mast clock in the circadian system, and it's this mast clock that influences when your body produces most of its melatonin and also primarily influences your sleep-wake timing, your meal times more strongly affect some of the peripheral clocks in the circadian system, which are all of those clocks outside of your master clock. So clocks in your liver and so on. And <clears throat> this hasn't been very well studied yet, but what seems to be the case is that if you were to go through a period of several weeks with early meal times, and then following that several weeks with later meal times by say three to four hours, you would shift various processes later. For example, your blood glucose rhythm would be delayed. The, the timing of some of the molecular clocks that underlie many of these rhythms would also shift later. And we don't need to go into the details of those molecular clocks. But as a rule of thumb, I think waiting at least half an hour in the morning after you've woken up before consuming anything other than water is a good thing to do. I think finishing your consumption of anything other than water by about two hours before your planned bedtime is also smart because if you have mm -hmm. too much food too late in the day, then you could negatively affect your sleep, mm -hmm. but also there are rhythmic changes and things like your blood sugar control, such that oral glucose tolerance is substantially worse at about 8 PM than it is at about 8 AM for most people. Mm -hmm. And that probably relates to melatonin because melatonin inhibits glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. So if you have a big bolus of carbohydrate shortly before bed, your pancreas won't produce as much insulin. And so your blood sugar will swing much more in response to that. And given that blood sugar control is very important to long-term health, risk of diabetes, risk of Alzheimer's, and so on, that matters. So I think that two-hour rule before bedtime is a good way to go. And then otherwise having regular meal times during the day from one day to the next. So fixed number of meals, ideally, also seems to have quite a strong influence on metabolic regulation. Mm. There's been interesting work looking at people who go through two conditions. In one condition, they consume a fixed number of meals each day, six meals. And when I say meals, obviously these are individually quite small and another condition in which they consume three to nine meals each day but in both instances on average they're consuming six meals after the regular six meal condition they have better appetite regulation better blood sugar control and so based on that i think keeping those meal times fixed from day to day also matters and then of course there's things like caffeine intake and alcohol but i'll pause there in case there's something you want to pick up on yeah, no, that's really cool to hear about. I think that the all the different kind of clocks and things are, uh, yeah, it's it's just a fascinating topic to me. And yeah, I think that it makes a lot of sense that as humans, we 
our body's kind of like having a bit of a structure. So I think what you said about, you know, having a routine, uh, having meals at a, at a fairly consistent time and kind of getting up and, and, and going to bed as well. One, yeah, one kind of related question was, so I think a lot of these things with clocks, we, so a, a number of them are modifiable, like we can change our meal structure and that, but let's say, um, you know, like I think one thing we can't change is the, the sun. So let's say like, what is the importance of timing your sleep schedule, like with kind of the daylight hours? Like for example, say it's the summer and, um, and like the, you know, the sunrise is really early or, uh, but for whatever reason with work, like you end up sleeping late and then sleeping in the next morning as your schedule, how much does that, does that matter? It's a good question. And uh, there are a few things to mention. So one is that there's quite large variation between people in their chronotype and chronotype is when you prefer to do certain things mm -hmm. relative to the sun clock and obviously at one end of the spectrum you have your early birds and at the other end of the spectrum you have your night owls and in general the early birds tend to have better health mm. and that's probably in part because they have more healthy behaviors <laughs> but also i think much of that is that their body's clocks are better aligned with the world around them. Because if we return to those camping studies that I mentioned earlier, what they found was that after several days of camping, the people who were night owls before going into the study accelerated their clocks and they were sleeping in much closer alignment with the sun, whereas the early birds going into the camping didn't really experience any changes in their sleep-wake timing. Mm -hmm. And that's probably in part driven by the fact that prior to the study, the early birds just had stronger time cues during the day. So they experienced more sun exposure during daylight, less exposure to artificial light at night and so on. So <clears throat> with that out of the way, I think that if you imagine two parallel universes mm -hmm. <laughs> in, one <Love> universe, <laughs> in one universe, you're going to bed at a time that's in close alignment with the world around you and in the other universe you're going to bed relatively later than what's going on in the world around you but the only difference is that your time cues occur at different points slightly difficult to explain what I'm trying to say here. But what I mean is that the only difference between these two universes is just the timing of your sleep-wake. Mm -hmm. And the timing of your meals relative to your sleep-wake cycle is the same in the yep. two universes. The timing of your training relative to your sleep-wake sleep cycle is the same. The total amount of light that you're exposed to during the, set, during the daytime is the same. Same goes for the nighttime. Then, I don't know that there would be any differences in your health in those two circumstances. Mm -hmm. So it's quite hard to, to give you a, a clear answer because I think it is possible to be perfectly healthy, but not have your sleep map to when it's dark outside. Mm 
And obviously we can think of extreme instances in which that is going to be the case. If you live in polar regions, the North Pole or the South Pole, during the summer, you have constant daylight. And during the winter, you have constant darkness. Mm -hmm. Then obviously it's going to be harder to synchronize your body's clock with a 24 hour day, but it is still possible to have perfectly good health and you just need to be more careful about your time cue. So making sure that you've got the lights on at certain times of day during the winter. If it's the summer, then making sure that you're staying out of the light, maybe using sunglasses or blue blocking glasses at appropriate times and so on. So that's a long way of saying that <laughs> I think for most people, if they give themselves strong time cues, spending enough time outdoors during the day, training at an appropriate time. And I think the appropriate time for most people is basically any time between at least an hour after they wake up in the morning and then finishing at least four hours before their planned bedtime, ideally, hmm. then they can, they can be perfectly healthy and also they'll find that their body's clocks naturally tightly align with what's going on outside mm -hmm. but let's say that you don't spend as much time outdoors but you still get a good dose of daylight each day and your training times are consistent and your meal times are consistent i don't think you have anything to worry about mm -hmm. yeah no yeah this circadian rhythm stuff is is uh interesting and yeah like a, uh, it's just stuff i want to kind of know more about and I think the audience will probably benefit from this as well. But yeah, we'll probably have to push some of our topics to another time. But um, I'm just curious about this. The other thing I was wondering is, you know, with the idea of being a night owl versus like an early bird, can you change your chronotype? Like if you just forcibly, you know, changed your, your, your routines and said, okay, and from now on, I'm going to work, work out first thing in the morning or change the times I eat and that kind of thing? So chronotype has a genetic component. Mm -hmm. if, we're, if we're truly talking about chronotype and genetics probably explain something like 50% of the variance between people mm. in their sleep-wake timing. And obviously there are extremes too. So one end of the spectrum, you have something that's named familial advanced sleep-wake phase syndrome. And then there's also familial delayed sleep-wake phase syndrome. And people in those categories either have very early sleep-wake timing or very late sleep-wake timing respectively. And both of those have identified genetic components. However, most people aren't at those extremes. And a lot of people have relatively flexible sleep-wake timing too. So they, they, can, they can move it around in accordance with when they're exposing themselves to certain time cues. And interestingly, this type of flexibility is also somewhat predictive of things like how well somebody will do in the context of shift work. Mm. Unsurprisingly, if you have relatively flexible sleep-wake times, you're more likely to fare better doing shift work mm. than if your preferred times are quite rigid. So yes, it definitely can change. The other thing to mention is that 
chronotype as a construct should be discussed in the context of people of a certain age and a certain sex because mm. sleep wake timing changed over yeah. the course of the lifespan. When you're first born, you don't really have consolidated sleep wake cycles, but after a few weeks, they start to emerge. And what we find is that young people, of course, tend to wake up early and go to bed early. They then progress through their development and right around the end of adolescence, they're at their latest. So during those formative years, sleep wake timing shifts later and later and later. Mm -hmm. And then from the end of adolescence, pretty much until the grave, people's sleep wake timing gets earlier and earlier and earlier again. And that's why it doesn't make sense to say that elderly people are early chronotypes relative to young people. What we should be saying is that within people of a certain age, yeah. there are early types and late types, if that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, this is just stuff where I remember learning about in med school and just seeing all these diagrams of clocks and things and just wanting to know more. So this is great. But uh, yeah, just keeping mindful of the time, I think um, we should probably uh, wind it down at this point. And we'll have to cover some of this other stuff later because it's, I think, a love a lot of value for people. So yeah, just wrapping things up. So uh, Greg runs a company called Resilient Nutrition. Could you tell us a bit about uh, what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a UK-based UK company and I co-founded it in 2020. And we aim to make feeling and performing better, simple and delicious. We make various different products and we've actually just recently re released a new product, which is a dark chocolate drink. To my knowledge, it's the first product that's specifically designed to help counter some of the negative consequences of poor sleep on how we feel and how we perform. And we also make a range of different performance enhancing nut butters, which might sound quite esoteric. The background to that is just that the company was formed off the back of some work that my co-founders and I did with a couple of guys at getting ready to row the Atlantic. We've done quite a lot of work with ultra endurance athletes and mm. to, to thrive while you're rowing the Atlantic, you need certain things and you also need products that are going to withstand those conditions. <laughs> and it just turns out that nut butters are really well suited <laughs> to that. So we have these nut butters and they're available in different versions for different times of day, including some high protein versions. The other thing that we do at Resilient Nutrition is try and teach people about how to improve their lifestyles so that they can get more out of life. And to that end, we regularly put out blogs, some of which are quite relevant to our discussion today. And there's also a free ebook about how to eat better, regardless of your dietary preferences. So whether you're on a keto diet or a high carb diet or a vegetarian diet, the principles in that ebook should apply to you. And there's quite a lot of information there on the subject of chrononutrition. So how your nutrition interacts with your biological rhythms. And that's available for free to download at resilientnutrition.com forward slash principles if people want to find out more. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so I'll be linking the website uh, in the description below. And yeah, it's been great to chat with you and hear about some of the stuff you're up to. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Bill.
That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.